0: Okay, welcome to episode five of Startup Impact Radio, the podcast about entrepreneurs and their vision for changing the world. The show is for people who love stories about startups and making the world a better place and the occasional drink recommendation. My co-host is Scott Tobe, CEO of Signature Financial Planning, and I'm Joel Reed, CEO of OpenArc.
1: Today, we're talking about CapSen Robotics with Jared Glover, who is the CEO of Capsen. He's also a graduate of MIT and CMU. Pretty impressive. We'll discuss everything there is to know about industrial robotic automation. And thanks for joining us, Jared. Yeah, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. So I'm curious, let's start big. What's
2: your vision for this company? Why do you exist? So the bottom line is that there's a lot of work that's not being done in the world right now. Um, A lot of that's because of labor shortages. If you look at just during the pandemic, just in the U.S. alone, three million people retired early. Um, There's also new categories of jobs that didn't really exist a few years ago. All the deliveries, um, you know, food, food deliveries and so on that are happening, the giant you know, growth and e-commerce is, is creating new types of jobs that didn't exist before. But What that means is it's pulling labor away from the work in the warehouses, in the, in the um, supply chain, in manufacturing. Nobody wants to drive forklifts anymore. Nobody wants to tend machines, um, you know, feed, feed, feed metal parts into a machine all day long. You know, nobody wants to, to work in uh, hot, dirty, dangerous environments all day long. Um, with backbreaking work. And so there's this big need, as, as we've seen during the pandemic, there's this big need uh, in the supply chain, lots of issues with the supply chain, which has also contributed to inflation quite a bit. And so robotics is just sort of, um, everybody knows it's the answer, but how we get there um, is, is the question. And so, you know, we exist because traditional robotics is not really up to the job of a lot of the tasks that need to be done. There's a lot of variety in the parts uh, and tasks that that um, are, are not being done right now well enough or, or with high enough um, volume because of the labor shortages. And uh, so we exist because robots need to get more capable, more intelligent, better at uh, doing a variety of tasks, more complicated tasks. And so uh, we provide the software that gives the robust those capabilities, and that's something that I've been working on. You, know, you mentioned my my uh, education background. I've been researching this for um, two decades now, more than two decades, and uh, something that we've been working on in the company for almost a decade now as well.
0: Jared, for people who don't know a lot about industrial robotics automation, can you just share some of the challenges in that space? You, you talked a little bit about some of the things that need to happen for this to really become a vision. Can you unpack that a little bit more for our audience?
2: Yeah, I'll, so I'll, i will tell you about the first robot that we installed. Um, so it was, uh, for an old, um, very traditional spring manufacturer. So they make, they make things out of, um, uh, they, they bend metal rods, basically. They bend them into different shapes, springs and hooks and so on, um, And a lot of their their parts, they 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 machine them, they cut them, and then they get dumped into bins. Uh, And the problem with these bent metal objects is that they can get entangled with each other. And so we we looked at their applications and, um, you know, they were not something that could be done with traditional automation. You've got hooks in the bin. You try to just, you know, use a traditional mechanical solution to get them out one at a time. There were these things called bull feeders that kind of spin them around and try to use clever dividing mechanisms and, and, and um, you know, the shape of the bull feeder to get them out one at a time. Or shake tables that just kind of shake them and then look at them with a 2D camera and try to get them out. You know, none of that was gonna work because they're just too entangled. Um, so we had to use our software to not just locate the hooks in the bin, but to pick them out uh, one at a time, grasp them in the right way, so that we could then rotate them to to let go of any that were tangled on the one you want. Um, and even that wasn't wasn't uh, good enough. Then the robot had to put it down and pick it up again from the other end, so that it could insert the the tail of the hook into a machine that that flattens the end as part of a larger assembly process. Um, so, so those are the kind of applications. That's just one example, but those are the kind of applications that were um, impossible. You know, that's sort of at the extreme end. There's a lot, a lot in between, but the kind of applications that were impossible for robots before companies like us existed, and now um, they're able to do. And that's on the manufacturing side. In, in the warehousing side, there's a big challenge of adding mobility to robot arms. So traditionally, robot arms are just stationary, they're bolted to a table, bolted to some sort of big metal frame. Uh, maybe they're in front of a conveyor belt, or maybe they're just in front of a table and somebody's bringing bins of parts to it or something. Um, but that's not really what you need in most warehouses. And we've seen mobile robots in warehouses for a number of years now. The big one was, you know, Amazon early on, um, for more than a decade now, I think it's been, but, um, you know, they they were designed to just carry around shelves, uh, carry around pallets, carry around bins, that sort of thing. And then you're still driving them to people and the people are doing the hard picking jobs, um, picking varieties of, of parts and doing things with them, scanning barcodes and, and sorting them and so on. And, uh, you know, you're still just sort of solving half of the equation there. And it's also kind of, uh, inefficient. You're doing a lot of driving back and forth of whole bins when really you just want one object from the bin. And so the best solution for, for not only cases like, like Amazon, where you're doing what's called each picking, picking one on, one item out of a bin at a time. Um, or for, for whole case picking, where you're picking whole boxes. Really what the industry wants is a, a robot that can do what people are doing right now. In the non-automated warehouses, which is you're driving around, uh, either a person's driving around a forklift, or they're pulling around a cart, and uh, you know picking just what they need, whether it's a full case or whether it's an individual item out of a box or a bin, just putting that on the cart that they're carrying or on their on their uh, forklift, and um, and just getting exactly what they need and, and driving away, and um, that's that's really. The way that the industry has operated most efficiently with people for decades and it's what they want robots to do but robots just haven't been flexible enough um, to to do that and and it's it's a combination of the software in that case and the hardware because getting all the the hardware you need in one package that can fit in the aisles in the right way but's you know strong enough to lift fifty pound boxes um, or these small parts and maybe it's not the same robot but um, anyways, those are the kind of challenges just at a high level.
1: Sounds incredibly useful uh, and important. So talk to us about customer validation. What, what are you hearing from, from your customers so far?
2: Uh, well, basically, in most cases, these are things that um, if they weren't working with us, they would have to be doing it manually or maybe not at all. So um, it's kind of, you know, there's a lot of, of gratitude, I I would say, because the companies we work with tend to, like everybody, tend to have labor shortages. And so we're able to help them boost their productivity, um, reduce injuries. Also, that's a really big one I haven't mentioned yet, but Mm -hmm. especially when you're dealing with um, very repetitive motions, you can have repetitive stress injuries. Um, But the big one, especially with, with heavier objects, when people are moving around whole boxes or bins is back injuries and shoulder injuries, people Bending down too low, reaching up too high with heavy objects, um, it, which it's kind of unavoidable sometimes because you want to, you want to, you know, utilize the space that you have, um, you know, in a really efficient way so that you maximize you, your storage capacity in, in these warehouses and factories. But, you know, that's not really what's best for ergonomics. And so there's always this, you know, this, this trade-off between safety and, and storage density and production density, and, and um, that creates injuries. That's the bottom line. So mm-hmm. using robots gets rid of all of that. Um, we've d- even done some work in the nuclear industry where it's like really clear cut, hey, the robot's in front of radiation instead of a person. Like what's what's better than that? <laughs> so yeah, um, it's just, yeah. the story with robotics is so obvious. Everybody knows robots should be used in these places. They're gonna be used eventually. and. Um, you know the challenge. The challenge is that we're at a stage in the technology and the R and D development in the, indus- in the industry where, you know, even though I'm, you know, my company's at the cutting edge of the software development in the industry. I've been doing research at top universities before this, you know, cutting edge stuff. But even the cutting edge in the industry is uh, on, on the AI side is not anywhere near where humans are, right? And so we're at this weird in between stage of hey, we've got software that's getting a lot more capable. We're able to get robots to do tasks that they couldn't do before, but it's still not as flexible, not as intelligent as people. And uh, there's still a lot of like very bespoke systems where this robot is designed to do exactly one thing. You know, maybe there's some variability, but like it's not just the software, it's the way you design the end effectors, right? Are you using a pinching fingered grasp? Are you using suction? Are you using magnets? How big is the end effector? How wide can it open and close? A lot of those things have to be custom designed for various applications, various sets of parts. Um, Sometimes the robot needs to like switch between multiple end effectors for multiple steps of a task. So there's like, you know, hardware and software that's very bespoke, very, very complex that you're combining together. Um, which is really why I, I think is the biggest reason why you're not seeing robots adopted quite as quickly as the industry really wants, because it just it takes time to develop all these different applications.
0: Application is uh, a custom program, basically, is what I'm hearing, uh, given the state of AI as it exists today. Is that there, a fair... There's certainly fair... a
2: lot of customization, yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's not
2: It's yeah. not 100%. I mean, one of, one of the biggest things that we add as a company is we have we have a very general purpose software core. And so we're able Funny. to very efficiently do these new applications. Like um, we had only done applications with stationary robot arms, bin picking, medical packaging, mm-hmm. machine tending, that sort of thing. That's all we had done for the first few years. And then um, we, had a, we just started our first project with a mobile robot with an arm on it um, less than a year ago, beginning of this year. And uh, we finished the, the prototype of the product in about seven, eight months um, with, with one person, basically. So it's, uh, it's something we can do more efficiently than a lot of other companies out there. But it's still, you know, it's seven, eight months. It's not something where, yeah. okay, you put it on a mobile robot and then we can install it in a month. You know, even if we yeah. could the lead times and yeah. all the components are really high right now. So there's just a lot of delays yeah. that add up. And that's what slows down adoption.
0: Yeah. Jared, I know it's hard to predict the future, but do you have some sense of a time frame when we might have more full AI that would enable that kind of one month deployment or a couple week deployment of to a new robotic application in the industrial space?
2: It's it's really hard to predict because I think it's a combination of hardware and software, right? Um, yeah. so if you if you really want to get to the level where you know, you can you can have a robot with very general purpose software and hardware that you can teach almost in the same way you teach a person, maybe just show them how a task is done and have them try it. And then you like correct them if they do something wrong, in you know, the same way you, you apprentice a person. Um, you know, you're talking about software capabilities that, uh, you know, don't exist yet. And you're talking about you know, hardware this general purpose. So you know, basically, you need you need robot hands, like mm-hmm. with with multiple fingers, lots of degrees of freedom, and those hands are not necessarily the things that are gonna do the job. You need the robot to use tools, and that's a very very, mm. uh, you know, new area of research. I've only seen a few people even attempt that uh, in uh, universities, okay. and it ha- it generally hasn't gone very well yet. So. <laughs> It's, uh, it's something I would love to see the industry work towards, but it's decades away. I mean, I don't even know if I'm going to see that in my lifetime. It'd be nice, but Mm. we're a ways away from that. Okay. And you're much younger than me. I am older than you probably think that I am, but still.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, so I, I understand that we're, that we're decades away. I mean, which actually is a little sad to hear because I I thought we were closer, but you know, I guess. Yeah, I watched this Boston Dynamics video the other day, and it was it was showing over the last ten years the progression, you know, of what their robots were able to do year by year, and it's impressive over that decade, you know, how they have become, you know, a lot more versatile. Um, you know, I think it was just going from sort of walking like a, a robot or how you would expect a robot to jumping up and down, dancing, um, doing all kinds of uh, uh, of things that that are way more advanced. So talk me through the next decade. Uh what what does the next decade look like? What are the progressions that you see happening and and what's CapSense piece of that uh, advancement over the next decade?
2: So I think what what's out there right now, there's there's a whole bunch of opportunities to install robots in places where the technology is ready for it. I mean any warehouse where you've got boxes to pick off of shelves or flow racks, um, you know, pallets that need to be sorted and put away, or or pallets that need to be built, all sorts of of uh, small parts handling and assembly and packaging tasks and manufacturing, um, you know, those will will slowly and steadily all become automated. Uh, maybe not all of them in the next ten years, but a, you know, significant chunk will become automated in the next ten years. Um, and, uh, you know, beyond that, and, and, you know, that's, that's where we live. That There's just so much opportunity with stuff. That's basically, you know, technology is ready to go. There's customization still on but the technology is ready to go. That's where we're going to live for the next 10 years. Probably the whole industry just, is going to keep us, keep us all busy for the next 10 years. Um, Jared, you were sharing earlier about the replacing humans, doing dangerous
0: work in dangerous environments with robots, that is such a huge impact, you guys are a part of. I imagine that you're, when you're working with the workers in these locations, that they're really happy that you're there and and involved in making their job safer.
2: Yeah, for sure, that's that's actually one of the things that um, surprised me somewhat, because it used to be, you don't really hear it anymore, but um, it used to be that there are a lot of articles published with with uh, fears of robots taking everyone's jobs and then suddenly when there weren't enough workers uh, and that's been a problem for a while that really got accelerated during the pandemic then all of a sudden you know all the economists realized oh actually robots create jobs and they boost productivity and they boost the economy which has always been true and nothing's changed but the the story in the media has certainly changed in the last few years but but anyways uh you know I went in with our first installation kind of you know, not, not sure how the workers were going to react. Are they going to, you know, like the robot, are they going to view it as a threat that, you know, it's going to come after their job next. Um, but no, everybody was, was really excited to have it in there. It was a job that it was doing a job that nobody wanted to do because they had to stick their fingers next to this big press. And it, you know, it, 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 wasn't so much, I think there was some safety issues with it, but it was more about, um, you know, just sort of psychologically it's, it's just hard to like force yourself to have a steady hand when a, you know, giant press is coming down next to it. And, uh, you know, it's just it's, it's not a fun job <laughs> beyond the fact that it's boring. So everybody and everybody just just like the um, the idea of having cutting edge technology, especially, you know, not just a robot arm, but a robot arm that's got cutting edge software that's doing a task that's never been done before in the world.
0: Uh, That, Mm
2: -hmm. that was really exciting to everybody. It was, it
1: was kind of cool. That is cool. So, uh, Jared, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you. I mean, in the intro, we talked about, uh, you know, the fact that you went to MIT and CMU, which are arguably two of the best tech schools, certainly in the country, maybe in the world, um, tell us about your origin story. How did, how did you get to where you are today?
2: Uh, that's a good question. it was a combination of uh, luck and obsession. Um, you know, so I was I was fortunate enough. My my dad was a professor at Carnegie Mellon, and I started taking classes at Carnegie Mellon Young when I was fourteen. Um, it worked out because I was homeschooled, and you know I was ahead in math, and so I just started taking classes early. And then, um, you know, because I was I'd already done well in those classes, then. They kinda of had to let me in because I've already proven that I can do well. So that was the first, you know, think being, being lucky on that front. And then um getting to MIT, I think I was I was lucky enough to um to kind of wander into a robotics lab. It wasn't like you know, something I wanted to do since I was a kid and I had this big no. I, I just randomly wandered into a robotics lab one summer when I was an undergrad. I think I was eighteen or something, and and um you know, I wandered into a robotics lab that happened to be run by a very well known professor in robotics. Um, and so I got, you know, not only good experience in that lab and working on some interesting problems, robot mapping and navigation and assisting people in nursing homes which was really, really cool. But uh but just being able to work in that group, I think, um, you know, and the fact that they liked the work that I did, you know, then that that gave me the recommendation letters I needed to get into MIT afterwards. Even though my, my grades weren't perfect by any means, but uh, <laughs> but just having that direct experience doing research with, um, you know, well-known top-notch researchers, I think got me into MIT next. Very cool that you walked into a ro- robotics lab and
0: got into this. That's an amazing story because my son, uh, I don't know if he's 12, but for the last several years, he's just wanted to do something with robots. So he's he's probably going to purposely wander into a <laughs> robotics lab someday (laughs) he and his friends are very intrigued by robots so you'll have a lot of uh, future potential employees jared from this generation that's great my
1: my nephew's at virginia tech right now and and he is very very interested in in robotics and yeah i agree with you joel there's there's certainly a a growing interest I, i feel like we've been talking about robotics for you know 20 years 30 years about the fact that they're going to eventually you know, become a part of our life. And it seems like we're at that point where it's finally becoming a reality. I
2: was just going to say, certainly on the industrial side, on the personal side, you know, there's still a lot of obstacles to overcome, both economic obstacles and technical obstacles before you see robots in everybody's home, beyond just, you know, the Roombas, the vacuum cleaners. But, you know, it'll be a long time still before we have robots cooking and cleaning for everybody. But that actually was kind of one of the things that excited me the most about robotics in the first place. So, you know, wandering into the robotics lab, I still, you know, I, I was excited by it for for not just technical reasons, but societal impact reasons, um, among them because my, uh, my sister has uh, severe disabilities, mental and physical disabilities, my young, younger sister. And, um, you know, it's really... It really uh, is is quite a lot for families to take care of, um, of of people like that, and you know it could be you're born that way, or it could be there's an accident, or just you know you get old and you need a lot of work, need a lot of help. But um, it's really tough for uh, for people to live independently without a lot of assistance. And um, so there's you know it's, it's 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 again an obvious thing people talk about. Robots should be able to help you live independently should be able to assist with with things like that um but it's 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 a challenge because robots are still very expensive and like I talked about mm. before they are usually made for specific applications so uh you know we looked into this a little bit when we started and we figured that we could probably make a robot that could you know brush somebody's teeth or feed somebody or help them eat independently, it'll cost a hundred thousand dollars and it'll just brush your teeth. And then you need need another robot if you want it to, you know, help you cook or something. And the the economics Mm -hmm. just aren't there. I think technically uh, there probably are some things in homes uh, or nursing homes that are possible now with the software and hardware, Mm -hmm. but it's going to be super expensive. And so I think it's still going to be a while before we see any of that technology really make an impact on those applications, unfortunately.
0: Hmm. Hmm.
2: You're just opening my
0: eyes, Jared, to the potential here of really improving the lives of people through robots when you shared that story. So we just had this discovery day here with the Pittsburgh Robotics Network, and I was taking my son, walking him around there, seeing all the things that are happening here in Pittsburgh. Can you talk for a minute about Robotics in Pittsburgh, and and now uh, maybe how that's helping you guys. What benefits there are to have your company being in Pittsburgh?
2: Yeah, it's it's definitely um, really nice to have lots of other robotics companies in the area. Um, you know, the talent obviously. You, you sort of have this cluster of companies, and um, you know, the hiring needs ebb and flow, and and um, you know, there's there's sort of this nice talent pool that stays in Pittsburgh now. And, and uh, you know, even if one company has to, has to lay some people off or even shuts down, like we've seen recently with a couple of big tech companies um, there's jobs for them with other companies here. That's, it's really, really nice to have that ecosystem. And that's really one of the biggest strengths is just the being able to retain all these talented people and, and get them excited to work in this robotics cluster, um, you know, The reason for that historically is, is CMU, I would say, Uh, you know, CMU has such a strong robotics program, a large robotics program, and invented a lot of the technologies that we're all, um, you know, further developing today. And uh, so, so it's really, it's really nice to have that history and the draw for talent. And then beyond that, I mean, being able to do shared events with other companies and, um, And just share ideas and and try to collaborate on certain things is is really, uh, it's really a great place to be. Hmm. That's great to
1: hear. Being a lifelong Pittsburgher, I uh, I definitely am am excited to hear your assessment, and uh, I'm cheering for the uh, robotics industry to succeed because I do think it's it's something that sets us apart. Certainly, Carnegie Mellon having them in in our backyard is a huge asset, and uh, I'm excited to. uh, see where that goes. So good to hear your assessment of it. Um, I'm curious if, if you could wave a magic wand, what would your company look like?
2: Oh, I, I think, um, you know, one of the things that I'm very proud of is our, our culture. We're very, you know, we're still a very small company. We have, uh, nine and a half people and, um, you know, very, very collaborative atmosphere. I would love to grow very big and still try to maintain that, that culture. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the things that is very important for me and, um, and, and my, um, uh, the rest of my management team is, you know, we've worked at, I, I haven't worked as much, but, um, you know, we've worked at bigger companies. Uh, some of us at very big companies and seen some of the dysfunctions in those companies and, um, you know it's really nice to work in a startup because you can cut through some of the red tape and get things done more efficiently, and everybody knows each other and and, uh, and helps each other out. Um, and that's hard to that's hard to scale sometimes. But um, you know I think we have an opportunity creating a new company. We're not that new anymore. We're eight years old, but but um, growing from a small company to a much larger company as as we scale um, our sales. I think we have an opportunity to try to create a company that uh, people are going to be happy to to come in, and work at, not just because we're working on exciting new applications, new technologies, but because it's just a, a good place to work and, uh, and and people are happy here. That's that's really my my dream for the company.
0: Jared, is there a value for you know the that maybe makes your culture unique? Uh you know, value amongst your leadership team for transparency or something else that um, really stands out to you that you could share with us?
2: I think it's a combination of being very selective with who we hire. Um, You know, not just looking for the people who can get the job done, but the people who really are, um, you know, very collaborative, not too much, um, not too much ego, and, uh, just, just very good, good, helpful people. Um, diversity is, is very important to us. You want to, you know, diverse in all, all kinds of ways, uh, you know, gender, sexuality, ethnicity, age, age is actually a really important one, I think. Um, and we've got diversity of age, you know, on, on a leadership team too, not just, uh, not just in the whole company. And that's very important, mm-hmm. but, um. You know, I think, I think more than anything, it's actually just kind of the way we operate. Um, you know, we, we try to have as much debate and discussion as possible about everything we do. So, you know, it's not just sort of me and and my co-founder talking and making decisions, and then we tell everybody what's happening, but, you know, we really try to have as much debate and discussion as possible. and again, that's something that's easy when you have 10 people, but, but maybe harder when you have a hundred or a thousand. So um, it's something we're going to try to maintain as, as much as we can.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah, I know. I know that's a challenge we face constantly at my company, Signature. We, you know, we've grown quite a bit over the last uh, really three, four years. And, we, you know, culture has always been the most important part to me, and yet you know as you grow it is constantly a challenge yeah. to maintain that culture and and yet i will continue to fight for it so i i totally hear you on that and and feel that that is one of the most important parts to running a company yeah um, you, mm-hmm. you you mentioned that uh that you you look uh younger than, than your actual age um what let, if you could go back and and give your your younger self some advice what what would it be
2: Hmm. Depends on how young, uh, I mean, if I would, if I would go back to college or even grad school, um, I was, I was pretty singularly focused on what I was doing at the time and whatever research project I was doing at the time, you know, that's, that's all I was focused on. That was my whole world. And, uh, you know, I wish I had kind of taken a step back and, um, Taking an opportunity to explore a little bit more, right. I was working, especially in MIT. I mean, I was working with some of the most brilliant people in the world. Um, but I was really focused very narrowly on the research I was doing. And I wish I had, um, you know, I, I wish I had collaborated more and really explored more, uh, with, with other people and, and, and not just on the research side, but, um, you know, on, on, um. Uh, on the industry side as well cuz cuz basically it was a pretty abrupt transition for me going from research into industry um you know and i i, I was pretty bad at it when i first started to be honest and <laughs> it's it was a very steep learning i wish i had kind of you know obviously i, I didn't well i i didn't say this but I, I it's not like i've been planning to be a ceo my whole life and, and start a company it's something that uh you know i i was interested in for a while but um didn't really have specific plans around it until pretty much right before we started the company. And, um, you know, I wish I had explored more about, um, about industry as well as a variety of different research areas. Uh, when I was younger to, to prepare me more for, for what I'm doing now.
0: Mm-hmm. That's great, Jared. That's similar to our last, uh, show that we did where we were talking about how valuable that industry experience is just as valuable as, knowing how to program a robot that, um, being close to the customer, understanding their problems, so forth, just so important to be successful as a company, equally important as being a technical wizard.
2: That's right. And, you know, I, I think the best, um, some of the companies that are able to grow the fastest are the ones where. The founding team has that deep industry experience and ideally, industry connections right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and that was probably the steepest part for, uh, for us, because you know I, I came purely from academics. My partner's been in industry for many years, but uh, in a different industry, not in robotics and software, mm-hmm. not not robotics. And so you know, we had to start from from ground zero, basically in terms of building up all of our connections and uh and knowledge of the industry.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great point. All right, so we'll bring this in for landing. Jared, you've been a great guest to have on the show. We like to end by asking people what their favorite drink is or if they have a drink recommendation. What have you been drinking lately? Maybe you had a Thanksgiving what, what would you share?
2: Uh well, I I I don't it's not an alcoholic drink but um I drank kale juice quite frequently when I was doing my PhD right. that, that gave me a boost of energy every day. Uh, and these days, I'm, is there a particular brand? Oh, no, I just made it. I just, I just took fresh kale and, just... and juiced okay, it. Okay.
1: Wow. Uh, wow. So is it just kale or do you add something that, that adds some sweetness to it?
2: No, just kale. It's, it actually is, is sweet yeah. just by itself. Um, you know, cause you're removing all the, all the pulp all the fiber you're removing, unfortunately, but, uh, you know, the, just the juice from the kale, there's some sweetness to it. Interesting. Mm. Well, you get the award
0: for the healthiest drink.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Well, since, since, uh, since you went healthy, I'm going to talk about my, my healthier drink, uh, (laughs) that I, that I like, after I work out, I always have a smoothie and, uh, I do put kale in it, but I, I mix it with, you know, uh, banana blueberry cinnamon um Mm. and then what else i put uh cachava vegetable uh vegetable powder in it protein powder um Mm. and some almond butter mix that all together it's a delicious drink that sounds Sounds good good, scott how about you joel anything
0: besides an alcoholic beverage (laughs) i only drink alcohol (laughs) now I have something called a protein packer at my local uh, pulp uh, close to my house. I could probably have one of those every single day, but I might try to uh, limit my intake of protein shakes. So. But that's great, Jared. Well, thanks. Uh, you definitely get the award for healthiest drink we've had recommended this far. And <laughs> and just pure kale made made by yourself at home. That's got to be the best. No wonder you look so young. <laughs> That is the
1: key, apparently. That's right.
0: So, Jared, if people want to learn more about you or your company. What's the best way to follow you and, and stay in touch with what Capson is doing?
2: Um, yeah, you can check out our website, Uh, You can contact us there. That'll come to me. We're still small. Um, and uh, follow us on LinkedIn.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, Jared, you were an awesome guest. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post it about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. It all helps. Until next time.